Well, thank you, Gabby and the team leading us in worship. It's been a meaningful time of worship in song and prayer, reading in the scriptures. And uh, we continue in our worship today and very intentionally uh, have the table set before you this morning. It is our custom on the first Sunday of every month to share in the Lord's Supper together. And so this morning I am asking that even during the preaching of the word, and I hope for the rest of the service it has been so, that the elements before you have pointed you to Jesus. The reality of his substitutionary atonement and just the blessing, the favor that he bestows on those who turn to him. Just uh, an announcement before we read the scriptures. Just uh, Jabba mentioned, whispered in my ear, that we have a problem with water this morning. And so, of course, when there's a problem with water, we have a problem with the restrooms. So apologies for that. And uh, we will, of course, seek to correct that problem. But why don't you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And I did uh, already start a series that I've entitled pathway to true happiness and uh, I'm sure that's something that each of us long for and strive for and we're going to learn again from Jesus this morning as he speaks in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount but the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount Mount known as the Beatitudes so reading from verse 1 and uh, Luke uh, Matthew writes he says seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the verse we're going to focus on this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Just so far, the reading of God's word. Lord, we come again this morning. We've expressed in song the truth of us needing you every hour. We know that you are the all-sufficient God, that we, Lord, are dependent creatures in every respect, the very breath we take, the food we eat, the homes we live in, the people around us, every good and perfect gift from your hand. But Lord, as we come this morning, we also know in our spiritual walk, the well-being and health of our souls. And we do pray that ministry this morning from the word would lead to greater health in our standing and our walk with you. Remembering as well that your, your word uh, regarding the Holy Spirit, that he will come and convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so we do pray for your spirit's work among us and to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, verse, this one verse has prompted many questions in my own mind, and I would trust that you're giving some thought to this as well. And I want to start in this introduction by just uh, mentioning some of these questions. Uh, If we consider, if we are blessed, we consider ourselves to be a blessed people of God, even broader and further afield, why should we or why would we mourn? If you are mourning, why or how can you be blessed? There seems to be uh, opposite things being said over here. What blessing is there in mourning? And if blessedness, at least in some way, means happiness, 
how can happy people be mourning? How is it possible for mourners to be blessed and comforted? And so I want to turn this morning and, and, and approach this subject and try and learn what is it that we can gain from what Jesus is telling us regarding this pathway to happiness, to be amongst those who are blessed. And so to begin with, I want to apply our minds by considering this topic, mourning, in the Bible. Just generally speaking, what can we learn? We go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, there's a lot of mourning over death. God had warned Adam and Eve regarding the consequences of their sin, that it would end in death. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Scary, frightening, horrific words. And then we find that death and mourning followed their disobedience. Not only would there be this, maybe I should pause there for a minute and just define death as something which is the unnatural wrenching of the body from the soul. Horrific in every and every instance. But death is that irreversible, inescapable, painful severing of human relationships in physical death. But from Adam onwards, Adam and Eve onwards, there is a default. Each and every human being experience find themselves in a default position of a severing from an intimate relationship with God. There's a wedge, there's a separation, there's a brokenness, there's, there's, there's a condemnation. But let me begin by just summarizing or giving you somewhat of an overview of mourning. Abraham mourns the death of Sarah. Jacob mourns what he believes to be the death of Joseph. Remember when uh, he was lied to by his sons. We find David mourning greatly over the death of Saul and even his dear friend Jonathan and, and also the baby that was born to Bathsheba. There's, there's pain. And, and so my point is that we people, we people here this morning uh, mourn the death of loved ones. Isn't that so? We, we know and, and, and say so often at memorial services, if you have loved anyone much, when that person passes, you grieve. There's a mourning, there's heartache. But death is, physical death is not the only cause for mourning. When Absalom is responsible for murder and he flees from Israel, and he does so to escape consequences, his father David mourns his absence. He's gone. And so there's a mourning over the loss of his presence. When the Israelites came to be on the threshold of entering the promised land, and they are told they will not enter the promised land because of their sin, the people mourned. They were sad. There was a mourning and they mourned because of the loss of anticipated benefits. They expected to enter into the land of milk and honey. They did not enter and so they mourned. We also see something of the wrongful mourning of Amnon because he could not have his sister Tamar. 
ridiculous. But yes, this guy's heartbroken and he's mourning over this that he cannot have. More well-known perhaps is Ahab mourning because he could not have Naboth's vineyard. Now why is he mourning? He's mourning out of envy. Someone else has got what he wants. He feels he deserves it. He wants it. He needs it. And so he mourns the loss of what he had wanted. But then as we move on also in the scripture, we find in Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist mourning over the sins of the people. My eyes shed streams of tears because the people do not keep your law. We find multiple instances like that, but let me give you one more from the book of Isaiah who tells us that the land, even the land mourns because of Israel's sin and the consequences that follow that sin. Chapter 4, verse 3, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So folks, these are just a few verses, a few instances, a small sample of many examples of mourning in the Bible. And so in summary, I could say that there is mourning that occurs after the death of a loved one, there is mourning that is inappropriate and selfish. And there is mourning that has a more direct relationship to sin. Now remember the table. A more direct relationship to sin and its consequences. And so we see a common thread, certainly that I want to uh, try and bring together, is that mourning is an emotional response. I've seen this church change in cultural representation a church that used to be a fairly uh, monocultural church uh, has turned into be a wonderful mix of different ethnic groups we counted at one stage, and I know it's always changing, but uh, I remember Peter telling me, Peter Vermisa, uh, more than 20 different ethnicities in this church. And I've had to learn as a pastor, I hope I'm still learning, but I've learned that people grieve differently. People mourn differently. And I've had to adapt and, and, and change in the way that I've responded and come alongside of people because I've discovered, for example, African people mourn in a very demonstrative way. There's a tremendous sense of, of expression. There's, there's, there's a vocalizing of the ache and the pain and the loss. Whereas on the other end of the extreme, I found that the more... Uh, British reserve that is left over in some of us white people is that we don't even know how to express it, but we feel it. We feel it. it it's, it's in there. There's an emotional response. And, and, and we cannot deny whether it is something that we hold in that there is a deep lingering ache. There's an emotional response. There is feeling an emotional response to loss. It is a deep sense of the loss of something. And of course, I'm going to try and develop that later. So having spoken then about mourning in the Bible, I want to now move on to speak about mourning of the blessed. We must certainly be interested in that when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He's talking about a certain group of people, not everybody, 
and a certain kind of mourning. Those examples of mourning we've seen already that are inappropriate and selfish. Not all mourning is good. And so therefore we must say that not all mourners are going to be comforted. We need to be sure, and I'm urging you this morning to be sure, that you know what it really means to mourn as Jesus understood it in this passage. Well, to find the answer to this type of mourning, I want to look in the first instance at Jesus himself. Mourning. And there are two instances that I will raise. The one is at the grave of Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The observation of those present, the Jews, John eleven thirty six, was see, see how he loved him. And so he understands that there is this, this, this pain and, and they saw that he certainly felt something of the grief of the loss of a friend. But was that the only reason that Jesus wept? I don't think so. Don't believe so. There is something more going on about Jesus weeping. He had told his disciples before he even got there that Lazarus was dead. He had delayed in his coming to meet with his friends. And so what is it? What is it that stirred Jesus, that prompted Jesus to the point of this emotion of weeping, of mourning? I believe it is that when Jesus is confronted, was confronted with the stark reality of death and the cause of death, in other words, sin and its consequences. Now, folks, think for a minute. A body, a person, living, growing, learning, loving, experiencing life, sharing experiences. Lazarus, his friend, perhaps some debate that they had. Perhaps they were laughing together. Perhaps other times they were crying together. Lazarus is dead. All of that is gone. Vitality is gone and the body will rot. Is there not a lesson for us that we need to see that there is something visually communicated by the death of someone. Seeing a lifeless corpse ought to prompt a question in you. Why? Why? Why this horror? And if I may be personal here this morning, my own loss of my wife... Getting a call early in the morning, you need to rush to the hospital, getting to the hospital, and she'd already passed away, but her body was still warm. But it wasn't long, and her face and body was pale, lifeless, gone, irreversible, the horror, the ugliness of death. It should force us to ask the question, once, once a beautiful life is now ended and gone. In fact, folks, this morning, death ought to jar you. It ought to stir within you and remind you of the connection between the ugliness of death, that which sin produced in its ultimate sense already back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus also mourned over the city of Jerusalem. We find this in Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached the city, he weeps 
over it. He weeps over it, here we know explicitly, because he had presented himself as the Messiah. He presented himself as the Redeemer, the one that would deliver them. They rejected him. Completely rejected him. The city and the people, as he stands there in their rejection, he knows their future prospects of condemnation and judgment and separation from God. And it stirs an emotion within him. Jesus mourning over the effects of sin, the consequences that will result in the people who continue and perpetuate a life in rebellion to God. The prospect of separation from God and judgment, the loss of a possibility of a relationship with God, spending eternity in hell. And so, folk, as we continue to look for clarity, let's not neglect the Scriptures in helping us understand the seriousness of this topic this morning. But I want to now look at a negative instance where the church is not mourning. So we learn positively, but we can also learn negatively. We cannot deny, I certainly would not deny, that church leaders and believers, members of a church, can and do fall into sin. I hope you agree with me. I'm certainly not sinless. Happy to publicly declare that I struggle with sin. I sin from time to time. I fail and I disappoint God. But, as with members, we clergy also can know the blessing of forgiveness. We can know the blessing of restoration, which takes place when that particular sin is confronted. But here's the problem. Far too often, and I'm going to go back to the New Testament, the church covers up the sin of its leaders and members. Why? Why would the church do that? I'm sure you've read, heard of many scandals of priests assaulting young boys over years and years and then finally get exposed. Why was it covered up? Why was it hidden? Why was a clergyman moved from this place to this place just so that this sin could be hidden? We evangelical and evangelicals are also not excluded from tolerating, hiding, justifying sinful behavior of a member or a leader. Why does or why would the community of faith tolerate sin? Well, Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, addressing the Corinthians. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And as Paul is saying, you're happily, luckily going along, lifting your hands in worship, pretending that all is well, while meanwhile there's a person in your church, everybody knows he's committing a heinous sin. And then Paul continues. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so, folks, there is a message about true mourning. Is that instead of ignoring we as a church, instead of tolerating or covering up or justifying or pretending, our hearts should be broken. 
when there is unresolved issues of sin in the community of faith. We should ache. We should be concerned. We should weep. Paul doesn't mince his words in facing the issue head on. Having to challenge the church for sitting there smugly proud. But Paul's not in for a popularity contest. Paul is concerned about pleasing God. And so the unresolved presence of sin ought to break our hearts. There's one more negative example of an emotional response to sin that helps us understand the meaning of mourning. And I've called it the insincere mourning of anyone. It would be amiss of us to ignore a type of mourning that is not the mourning of the blessed. On the surface, it looks like the real thing. I mean, emotions can be expressed, words can be said. But it does not emerge from who I am and what I've done as one who has sinned in the presence of God. Example? Judas. Judas. He's filled with sorrow. He's filled with remorse. He's not blessed. And he's not comforted. We read in Matthew chapter 27, after the expression of so-called mourning, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, he went, and he hanged himself. There's no comfort and blessing in that. And so the mourning of the blessed is when you in the presence of a holy God, when I in the presence of a holy God, respond with an emotional realization as well as an intellectual realization of the ugliness and the filthiness of sin and the consequences that I'm in trouble in my soul, in my relationship with God, and turn from it, which leads me to my third point, which will be more encouraging, I hope. Comfort of the blessed. Jesus comes to Nazareth. He presents himself in the temple. And he takes up a scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61. But I'll quote from Luke chapter 4 verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I've come with good news. I've come with that which will liberate you, that which will restore people in their relationship to God. Now that is only part of Isaiah 61. Jesus, however, is using this passage as a passage that points to himself. And so the passage continues, and we need to read what it continues to say. And so when he gets to the end uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, there will be favor shown to some, and there will be vengeance and judgment shown to others. And then he continues to comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, 
that he may be glorified. And so, folk, those who mourn, if we want to understand this passage, have got to be defined by this passage. It's a passage that refers to Israel's sin. We've been told about the judgment that's going to come upon the nation. Now we've been told about the deliverance that will come. Go back to these words. To grant. We South Africans know about grants. It's something given. To grant to those who mourn. The comfort we find is comfort that comes from those who are willing to acknowledge their sin and defiance to a holy God. That's, that's it. Those who acknowledge God's judgment that come with an attitude, wretched man that I am. Who said that? It was the Apostle Paul. He never ever got to a place where he thought he'd arrived. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or even if you go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah as he enters into the temple and is exposed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Woe is me. There's a sense I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now Isaiah is looking to Israel's sin, their captivity, their restoration, but ultimately this passage is pointing to Jesus and Jesus bringing about, accomplishing the good news of redemption. Punishment, substitutionary atonement, his body given, his body broken, his blood shed. And so, folk, mourning. Mourning has got to do, the center, if you like, of the bull's eye of what mourning is, is about sin and the prospect of God's judgment. And so the comfort, the comfort must be the comfort that comes from Jesus, where he bears man and woman's punishment, where he provides deliverance and forgiveness and righteousness on the basis of his sacrifice. To read that passage again from Isaiah, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you need? That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Dear folk, Jesus and the prophets, it cannot be denied that they are mourning about sin. The consequences of sin. The condemnation that is the project, uh, the prospect. Which leads me to my fourth point. Mourners or mourning never stands alone. There is a kind of sorrow, mourning, that brings life and comfort. I hope you've seen that and we meet at the table today to remember the blessing secured. That leads to repentance. But I want to show you now that the second beatitude is connected or linked to the first one. Poverty of spirit, what is that? It's the recognition of my sinful state that I have nothing to commend myself to God that you and I are spiritual paupers. I try to put that in just a single sentence. God, you are right about me. I can pretend amongst people. God knows me. God knows my heart. You're right, and because you're right, because you know me, I'm spiritually impoverished. Well, mourning. Well, mourning is that emotional. Like we mourn the loss of a loved one. Do you know that ache 
that lingers not just for hours, but sometimes days and weeks and months, the ache, but also the volitional, the mind, the exercise of the will, the response, that when in a spiritual state of poverty before God, realizing the danger. God, I'm in trouble. Not only are you right, but I'm in trouble. If you're conscious through the working of the Spirit that indeed you are poor, miserable, naked, blind in the presence of God, that you're nothing, that you have nothing, you can do nothing, then you recognize I'm tumbling headlong into condemnation. That produces mourning. It's not rooted in self-pity, but about the recognition of need in the presence of a holy God. If that mourning is genuine, it will work through in your decision-making, turning to Jesus as the refuge, Savior of your soul. God, have mercy on me. And then if I could just add a comment before I close. We do need to know that initial mourning at conversion, that's often where we focus, must become a continuous principle. Let me change that. It does become a continuous principle in the mourning in the heart of a true believer. Some may say, but hang on a minute, justified by faith. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Declared righteous. So after conversion, though, there are remaining marks of sin. There is not one single one of us who has arrived and sinlessly uh, perfect. We struggle with sin. As the word is preached, as the Spirit of God works, and, and where there is a willingness for honest soul searching, you will know, and I will know, my continued need of the Savior. Here's an illustration. Close to my house is a nursery called Safari. I think it's a well-known nursery in Pretoria. So in the many years ago when I had little children, uh, we would often take the children to Safari Nursery. And the reason for that is because there is an enclosure with different animals. There are exotic birds. There are some bunnies, and little children always like the little bunnies. And there's a pig pen. And these pigs are filthy, and their pen is slushy and muddy and stinky, and pigs just love it. They roll in it, and we block our noses and stand at a distance. Keep that in your mind. I also have had two little girls who are now adults. And even my adult girls sometimes send me pictures and ask me, Dad, is this dress okay for this occasion tonight? They still do that, this last week. But when they were little girls, they loved to dress up in pretty dresses. Coming to church, going to a birthday party, uh, they love to look good. Now imagine my little girl, perhaps it could be you as a little girl or your daughter, she slips as she leaves the house and has mud on her party dress. What's the difference? Well, the pig has a disposition that loves wallowing in mud. The little girl doesn't. Before conversion, and forgive me for saying this, we have a pig's nature. A pig having a heart for mud. 
our default position with the sinful nature is we have a default to sin. But after conversion, God gives the believer a new disposition, a new attitude, a new creature, born again of the Spirit, like the little girl. If she gets stained with mud, she's miserable until the dirt is cleaned. She doesn't spend her time looking for someone to blame. She doesn't explain the dirt away because it stays there. Instead, she feels sadness and sorrow, having dirty to dress. And what does she do? She makes a decision, even as a little girl, Mommy, will you clean my dress? That reminded me of 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You don't live in a pig pen anymore. Don't wallow in the mud. But if anyone does sin, now that you have a party dress on, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Folk, isn't the gospel a magnificent story? It is magnificent good news. But you will not understand that good news properly if you don't understand the nature of the problem. I want to close in my conclusion another comment. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And the comment is uh, from Ezekiel. It's a comment on the blessedness. Remember what I said, a specific type of mourning. It's the blessedness of a restored fellowship with God. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4. And the Lord said to him, to this man, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. If you read a little bit further, it's scary. It says there that, and to others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike your eye Your eye shall not spare, you shall not show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch not, touch no one who has the mock. There's a mock. There's a mock that determines the blessedness of those who are in favor, who experience the grace of God. And it is those who sigh and groan. And focus, we come to the table this morning. And this is intended to be the entirety of a communion service. I'm not going to detach this from what I've just done. There ought to be a sense of groaning and moaning in your heart as you reflect on today and yesterday. If it has not been a deed, has it been a thought in the presence of a holy God? Oh Lord, I need your mercy. Please, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the body, for the atoning work of Jesus. A sincere mourning of the awfulness of sin combined with a sense of bankruptcy. I have nothing in my hands. A dependence on Christ. And you know what it'll do? Remember where I started? Title of the series? A pathway to happiness, comfort, and joy. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness 
in obedience to lay down your life in that while we were yet sinners, you loved us and gave yourself for us. Thank you for the hope that we do not need to perish, that those who believe are not condemned, that those who do not believe already condemned. Lord, frightening, frightening words. May we not gloss over them. Pray that you would stir deep within our hearts by your spirit. But Lord, as we partake now of this uh, table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, may it be, Lord, a time of uh, starting again, just being refreshed in our relationship with you. Perhaps there's been something, Lord, that we have done or thought that has grieved your spirit, those who are believers. Perhaps someone who is not a believer today coming to see for the first time their own spiritual poverty and need for a Savior. Lord, you're the one at work. And so we look to you and trust you. Minister to us by your spirit. Great hope and blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's just the visible ordinance. It's the continuing ordinance of the church that was instituted until Jesus comes. When he took bread and he broke it in the company of his disciples at Last Supper, this is my body. Folk, what a wonderful, wonderful declaration by Jesus, given for you. I don't have to pretend, you don't have to pretend. We are sinners. Jesus takes my sin, takes your sin, and suffers the consequences as it's laid on his shoulders. And he gives his righteousness as a gift to believers. And then, of course, we know right from the Old Testament, the repeated uh, practice of sacrifice, the killing of the unblemished lamb. Jesus coming as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because his blood is poured so that guilt may be covered. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness of sin.